Our friends at the New Republic have a podcast, The Politics of Everything, hosted by TNR literary editor Laura Marsh and contributing writer Alex Perrine. The show explores the issues people are talking about and the political currents beneath their surface. On past episodes, Alex, Laura, and their guests discussed what, if anything, is considered disqualifying for political office today. Whether the modern-day authoritarian curious GOP meets the criteria of a fascist party. And if the hype and doomsaying around programs like ChatGPT is masking its real limitations and dangers. You can find the politics of everything wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca, Gwenda Jackson, Cormac McCarthy, Silvio Berlusconi, Pat Robertson, Ted Kaczynski. These are just a handful of the countless important and or infamous people who have been outlived by Henry Kissinger. The former statesman's 100th birthday has been cause for multiple celebrations. No doubt the most grotesque one was held at the New York Public Library's Bryant Park branch. Yes, they do rentals. I cannot do justice to Kissinger's crimes in a single podcast episode. They're just too numerous, and each requires extreme detail, the backbiting, the mind dance, just all of it. All of it. In the February and March 2001 issues of Harper's, Christopher Hitchens laid out the case for prosecuting Kissinger as a war criminal. Inspired by Augusto Pinochet's failure to secure immunity, Hitchens focused on the aspects of Kissinger's career that were, unquestionably, war crimes. Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Chile, Cyprus, East Timor, that some of his work at Kissinger Associates. The list is long, as is the piece. I was joined by Daniel Bessner, co-host of American Prestige, to discuss Kissinger and Hitch's takedown of him. Kissinger is associated with the notion of realpolitik, right? But it's a label that he's rejected numerous times. And, you know, reading Hitchens's piece, you know, Hitchens clearly didn't think that Kissinger was doing realpolitik. So where do you stand on this, you know, knowing what we know now? Yeah, well, I think a lot of the problem comes from the fact that analysts, political scientists, and historians want people to have coherent worldviews. Mm. Um, but particularly when someone's actually in power, uh, they oftentimes don't. Um, they act in, in different ways for different reasons that, that really one can't just put on a um, coherent narrative on their policy. Um, but I mean, I think it broadly speaking, uh, it's fair to say that Kissinger didn't especially emphasize ideological politics, even though of course he did have an ideology because everyone has an ideology, mm-hmm. but he wasn't, you know, if you think about it, an avowed Cold War liberal like the people who came before him. He wasn't especially a human rights guy. I mean, he definitely wasn't a human rights guy uh, as the people who came after him. Um, So he did stress power and power relations both both in his theory and his practice. So I think it's not an unfair characterization, but, you know, it falls apart once you actually look at someone 
life and career and what they did in office. Yeah, I mean, something that Hitchens zeroes in on a lot is this, well, there are two things, really. There is Kissinger's fear of losing credibility. And then there's also his, he loves to be as close as he can be to power. Either of those are perhaps a little too simple and sometimes maybe they interact with each other, but I guess ideas are very important to Kissinger. So what what was he drawing on? Like what what do you, I mean at the risk of doing like a great man of history thing? What 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 do you think sort of what was his guiding light? It's a good question. I think in some sense he believed the United States was an agent of history um and that the fate of the world to some degree rested on US power. Mm-hmm. Uh and I think that was probably linked to his experience as an exile from Nazi Germany, someone who worked for the US military during World War II, and then of, co- of course someone who made his professional career writing about international relations. So there's that broad vision. And then of of course he he was a very good manipulator of power. He was a good politician in the small p sense. He knew how to manipulate bureaucracies. Several moments in his life, he was very effective um, in putting himself at the center of things from Harvard to the State Department and throughout the government as a whole. Um, so he was a really good political operator in, in addition to someone who was obviously, you know, smart. You know, I saw Greg Grandin on online said that he he didn't think Kissinger was smart, that everything that he did was type of warmed over. Um, I don't I, I don't personally agree with that. I think Kissinger was a smart guy. I mean, I, I don't know what that if that matters. It certainly doesn't matter in moral judgment. But, yeah, I think he he thought about things and certainly was no dummy. I think you could argue from the number of birthday parties, centennial celebrations that Kissinger has had over the past couple of weeks that, you know, obviously it's it, it really is something to live to 100. Like that it should be celebrated. But the guest list at the New York Public Library, the fact that they rented out the New York Public Library, which sounds like for Kissinger's birthday, which sounds like a Simpsons episode from 1994. Crazy. I mean, why has there been so much celebration across these very strange swaths of celebrity politicians, army people, just just socialites? Like he, what is it? What is it about Kissinger that brings out such random yet clearly important people? Like why has he, why has he persisted in public life? It's a really good question. I mean, on one hand, Kissinger obviously has been courting these relationships for over 50 years, and he's very successful at, at courting them. Um, maybe he's like really good at parties. He's really witty and interesting. Um, people like being associated with power. So particularly in the 70s when he was in power, um, people no doubt liked being associated with him. And then, of course, through Kissinger and Associates, he was very... Um, very powerful outside of the official spheres of government, in addition to serving on various governmental and parastatal um, bodies. So I think there's an aura around him as a kind of great statesman, um, which is why you have someone like Samantha Power attending the birthday party and, and people who are uh, ideologically not on the same side, or at least they state they're not on the same side. I think what right. someone like Kissinger shows is how much that the U.S. foreign policy establishment 
um, really does agree on fundamentally about the necessity of U.S. primacy, um, about the need for the United States to basically tell the world what needs to be done. Um, and someone like Kissinger is a person that people could fet and, and kind of walk around um, and uh, really show who they are, their true colors. Yeah, I mean, he's a smart guy. He went to Harvard. He went from Harvard to the White House. <laughs> Come on. Of course you want to. Yes, I mean, he, he, he did go to Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's also, I mean, when I was preparing for this, what I thought was fascinating is obviously the, the period of his life where he was a sex symbol. Like he was out of Nixon's crazy, insane person cabinet. He was like the one to be seen with. And he did date a lot of beautiful women, you know, starlets. And what, you know, biographers have said is that he did listen to women at a time when men didn't listen to women. So, you know, uh, maybe. Yeah, no, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> he clearly found women interesting and he, he you know, connected in some way. I, I, I don't think that that randomly, um, that necessarily would randomly happen. And he was no. probably witty and interesting. Yeah, but also the idea that he would kind of use these blonde bombshells, his fame against other members of the Nixon cabinet to kind of in this weird brinksmanship that, of course, you know, reaches its zenith with the wiretapping himself <laughs> and then punching up, punching up the transcripts of what he said to, you know, Haldeman or whatever. Yeah, uh, exactly. And there's definitely also stuff going on there with Jewish identity and being an exile um, and, and, and being raised in the United States. And so there's a lot of like psychologically things happening psychologically there. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, you're a historian and for the time, <laughs> I have to state the obvious you're a historian, but, you know, for the time, talk, think, switching back to Hitchens' article, this it, this was kind of a rarity, it, you know, not that people didn't do in-depth takedowns of professional monsters, but that this piece, these two parts of these these pieces are so invested in history. And I wouldn't say that now it's nonstop, but it's 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 common now for journalism to reckon with history in big ways, like the 1619 Project, and then in Absolutely. smaller, and then then in smaller ways. You know, uh, to quote Jay Kang, some of this has to do with Wikipedia. Just journalists are like, <laughs> I'm not gonna check out my thing. But you know, what do you make of this turn toward history and in journalism? Is it actually helpful? And does Hitchens's piece kind of provide a model for how to do that or how not to do that well it's kind of funny because obviously this is before hitchens neoconservative or right-wing turn however you want to define months it. yeah <laughs> just 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 before it and so um i mean i no, i don't think there's a particular use in terms of actually ha leading to consequences like putting henry kissinger on trial um and it's also kind of funny to read hitchin kind of Hitchens wax poetic about international law, yeah. um, you know, when he would very soon, you know, not be especially concerned with international law, to say the least. Um, but I think the turn to history reflects the fact that people, um, I can't speak for what Hitchens was thinking, but it it basically shows that there there's no other way forward. Like Kissinger wasn't going to be put on trial. So the best Hitchens could do was look at the history and try to come up with, uh, you know, at least a case against Henry Kissinger. Um, uh, no, I don't think it's especially effective. And when we're talking about today, I think it really is linked to the fact that people think that reform is basically impossible, um, that that things are really not going to change. 
And so the best you could do is is litigate history. There's a sense of um, stasis or non-movement, I think, uh, in in, um, American life right now that's reflected partially in the turn to history. Plus the fact that there's just a lot of historians without jobs because of the collapse of the academic job market. So there's more public writing um, and things like that as people try to build out new careers. Yes. Uh, you wouldn't know anything about that, would you? <laughs> um, oh, that's Well, weird. I'm one of the lucky few. I mean, I'm tenured. Um, but for other people. Uh, for much, much, much of the younger uh, historians' cohort, um, you know, it's almost impossible to get a job. They just don't exist any longer. Yeah, the real crisis of the academy. Um, yeah. But the, you know, it's it's fascinating to read this again, as you say, because this is just months before the nine eleven virus destroyed Christ- Christopher Hitchens' brain. But you know, these were some of these were just conspiracy theories at the time. You know, the the idea that Nixon and his crew had sabotaged the Paris Peace Accords that was later, you know, between North and South Vietnamese forces in order to win the election. Well, that's actually kind of interesting because from my understanding, actually, the latest historiography doesn't think Kissinger played a huge role in that. Well, yes, that's <laughs> so, it. That's what yeah. I was going to say. But they definitely fucked around with the, the peace, peace Accords, but they did not. But it was not Kissinger who did it. Yeah, and there's, and a lot of this stuff is just very difficult to trace, even still because of the overclassification. And, and it, it is interesting, also, how Kissinger has become this symbol on the left. Um, I mean, he's still alive. Uh, he, you know, he's still one of the last people alive from this generation that that could, could be connected to some terrible moments in U.S. foreign policy, particularly Vietnam. Um, but yeah, he is really uh, he has become a symbol on the left. It'll be interesting to see what happens when he dies. And how that continues or, or doesn't continue, as the case may be, I think it's difficult to know. I'm not sure that many people who are under 30 give much of a shit about Henry Kissinger. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that lasts or doesn't. Yeah, I mean, he's he's so effective as this monster of history that, you know, I I mean, I found myself surprised at some of the, the details that were in the Hitchens piece where I was like, oh, East Timor. Like because you when we associate with the, in the popular understanding of Kissinger, it usually stops with Nixon, but his power persisted and it, it persisted for quite a long time, especially with as you say Kissinger associates. So, I guess, could you elaborate more on what he means to the left? He's sort of a stand-in for the, I don't know, the demonology of U.S. foreign policy, where he really. Um, embodies to many people on the left uh this sort of evil american statesman um but it's also like kind of you know how the left obsesses about certain things and aren't as particularly uh useful i I mean i put the jfk assassination up there i put you know the 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 criticisms of kissinger up there it's more of a symptom of powerlessness than any sort of political goal or ideology like um it's too bad hitchens isn't alive because i'd, I'd want to just ask him like what was he I, I i mean it's an interesting piece but i'm curious if he thought that he was doing something my guess would be probably not i mean he was he was a writer uh also like that piece could have used an edit <laughs> it was so long <laughs> it didn't need to be that long a lot of like block quotes a lot of oh my god sort of meandering sentences I guess, but that's when people used to read things. So what do I know? Yeah. And there's so many like cute little sides here and there. You know, he just, these little zingers that maybe aren't even that clever. People just don't read like that anymore. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, I think that's what's, it's obviously it's, um, 
it's fun to go back and read when people were smart. But it, it, the particular tone of this is that it it has this weird sense of trying to be comprehensive, but it also it's not because it could not be because it's it's impossible to be comprehensive about someone, you know, who so many documents are still classified. Yeah. And to be like comprehensive, it would have to be like a fully contextualized history, which yeah. is not what you can do in this space of an article like this. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, this was clearly the basis for his book, right? His book mm -hmm. on Kissinger. Uh, I wonder if it's this word for word or if he rewrote some of it. But yeah, he 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 builds this out, I think, um, for a few years after. Yeah. No, because I mean, the part about, I don't know, the part about Cyprus, come on too long um yeah yeah <laughs> but i mean do you think you can detect the person that hitchens would become after 9 11 in these in these in this writing well there's always that like profound moral indignation to hitchens <laughs> yeah. uh and it's just like that could go in a, in a bunch of different directions i think um so that that could go you know against kissinger or someone a, a criticism that i i might um, believe in or uh, agree with more, and but it could also go, you know, against <laughs> what Islamofascism yeah. or whatever term that he he used. So uh, I think that's sort of you know found across Hitchens, um, and this was a good example of that. What are the historical injustices that people should be mobilizing against or trying to keep the memory alive of instead of this, you know? the last of the dinosaurs having this weird birthday party at the New York Public <laughs> Library. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that depends on different communities and different goals. And, and there's not a broad um, argument one should make about, you know, if it reads this threshold, then you should you, you, um, memorialize. And if it reaches a different one, you shouldn't, you should not. I think it, it relates to ends and intentions and mm -hmm. why someone is memorializing a particular event or why someone um, is not memorializing a particular event. Yeah. And obviously this came to a head recently after Charlottesville with the various statues of Confederate soldiers. So this has been, you know, the topic of historical memory has been, you know, um, hot recently. Uh, and it's, it's, it's an important issue, but it has to be connected to some sort of political project or goal. Otherwise, it's, it's kind of just goes in circles. Yeah. I mean, is there any point of talking about Kissinger, considering how prolific, prolific he was? I mean, I don't think it really has any real political purpose, mm -hmm. um, but people could make moral condemnations or people could, you know, do it as a sense to indicate belonging or in a particular group or their own criticism of U.S. foreign policy. But it, it, is it politically, politically efficacious? Uh, I do not think so. But, it, you know, to, to play devil's advocate for a second, it does show that. But then this is dangerous territory, too, that, you know, the left and the right are actually not that far apart from each other. And usually they're working hand in glove on certain international projects, let's say. Uh, in terms of you mean like the mainstream, like the center left and center right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they 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 share quite a bit when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, at least in terms of the fundamentals about the United States needing to rule the world for now and forever and maintain hegemony in, in most areas around the, the globe. And I mean, Kissinger is such a great emblem of that, which is perhaps, you know, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. He he's someone who on. was a Democrat, you know, who then made his name in a Republican administration uh, because there was a lot of agreement over U.S. foreign policy. If he should be remembered for anything, 
what should he be remembered for? Well, I mean, in, in terms of the should, that's kind of a normative question. And I, I mean, I think he embodies the contradictions at the heart of U.S. foreign policy. Someone who committed horrific human rights abuses in Southeast Asia, but on the other hand, did contribute to detente with the Soviet Union. Uh, and I mean, I think it just ultimately goes that it's some the life of someone like Kissinger just demonstrates how the U.S. Amp- empire can't really be used for good. Uh, in my opinion, or on balance, that you can't get the good of the U.S. empire without the bad. And that's the tragedy of someone like Kissinger his, his entire life is that he, I'm sure he thought he was doing good in the world, um, but he absolutely was not able to use this imperial structure to actually achieve good. And I think uh, most people listening probably agree, contributed to an incredible amount of human misery, uh, destruction, deracination, and death. Um, and so I think if if what he should be remembered for is that the, the sort of contradictions and tragedies and ultimately evil that, that exists at the heart of the American empire. And not at power itself, but this specific incarnation of power. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you could, there are arguments to be made about like power itself is inherently corrupting and there's probably some truth to that. Um, but th- th- that's kind of like you could say that about many, many different people in many different areas. So if we're talking about Kissinger specifically, I think that that's what he uh, he helps us get at. Well, Kissinger is also famous for saying that power is the greatest aphrodisiac, which I think might yes. be a telling on himself instead of all those women that he was hanging out with. But Yeah, he has like <laughs> a bunch of lines like that. I think also... I think the one attributed to him that I like the most is academic politics are so vicious because the stakes are so small, <laughs> something like that. You know, he has a bunch of bon mots yeah. like that. Yeah. the uh, And obviously the, the other great one that people love to trot out is that a good compromise means that both parties leave unhappy, which it right, seems yeah. like, well, that's the that's the reality we're living in right now. Because, <laughs> I mean, the thing the thing that is daunting about preparing for an episode like this is that there's so much information and there is so much in the Hitchens piece. And yet, as you correctly note, a lot of it seems besides a point, even though it is this record of horrific yeah, it's suffering. It's kind of like a detail. It's kind of like this strange, never ending piece. <laughs> <laughs> no. And I mean, I guess finally, um, you know, revisiting this period of history, you know, there's this temptation to dub one president the worst president that ever existed. But it seems like in terms of administrations, Nixon's was pretty bad. I mean, Trump's was like goofy and George I W. Mean, Bush's and yeah, Bush's and Nixon's are so much worse than Trump's. There's just yeah. no comparison. Well, I mean, he was I indicted. Just people are. Yeah, they're just hot. They just want to get excited about something. Did you say yeah, we're but, at the stalemate? Yeah. Yeah, but it's not hitting the same anyway anymore. No, you know, like even the Trump indictment, you could tell like even the hardcore resistance people are not like it's not (laughs) as hit doesn't hit as much. I know it's the second one. It's pretty. It's it's a it's a bit it's a bit tame. It was funny. It was funny, but um, well, thank you so much. This was a little treat, a little a little bomo in the in the spirit of Henry. (laughs) Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me on. And uh, everyone check out American Prestige if they want to hear more (laughs) foreign affairs stuff. Yes, yes. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. 
Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save 